it was always just one part of my body or one part of my health that was being discussed or prioritized. The minute I left that half an hour appointment, I have to deal with the rest of my own body. I have to deal with the rest of me. Welcome to Care to Connect, an interprofessional healthcare series about interprofessional collaboration in healthcare. I'm your host, Asma Gafoor. More than 60% of medical errors are a result of poor communication among medical professionals. And unfortunately, the patients bear the brunt of these mistakes. Successful interprofessional collaboration requires more than simply professionals setting aside their differences and getting along. There are a surprising number of hidden players that can impact the delivery of quality healthcare. According to a focus group study, there are five major factors that influence effective collaboration. Two of these factors are related to the patient and the healthcare worker. The rest include interpersonal factors, such as language differences, trust, and motivation, organizational factors like leadership and administrative support, and finally, external factors like education, culture, laws and regulations, finance, and technology. Before entering the field of healthcare myself, I had no idea that so many factors contribute to a quality healthcare experience. Our guest today, Janet Rodriguez, will be exploring these facets with me. Janet is an experienced translator, but volunteers her time to use her lived experience with chronic pain and its treatment as a tool for educating students and healthcare professionals about the challenges that patients might face when navigating the healthcare system. We will be discussing the importance of some of the hidden players of good healthcare, such as a supportive legal system, finances, transportation, and communication. We will also talk about one of the most important players on the team, the patient. My name is Janet Rodriguez. I am from Peru. I am uh, a translator. I identify myself as a woman, a racialized woman with visible and invisible disabilities. I live with various chronic illnesses. I live in Toronto. I would say that my life really took a turn when I was uh, in my late 20s. I was diagnosed with uh, rheumatoid arthritis. The doctor, who was very compassionate at the time, told me, this is a chronic disease. And in my head was like, oh, arthritis is old people's disease. Didn't even believe that was right. And he also told me, it's okay if you want to cry. And I was like, quite a drama. You know, it just give me the prescription. I'll take the medication and in a week or two, I will be okay. Because up to that point in my life, every affliction, every medical issue that I've experienced was cured with a pill, an injection, some sort of treatment in a week or two, right? So I understood I was sick, but I did not know that this was for life. It was not until five years later that I finally understood this disease is here to stay and every day is just getting worse and worse. And, and it was difficult for me to control it, even though I was receiving medical care, but it was just really devastating. Is everyone always up to date with your needs or do you find that sometimes you have to repeat to members of the healthcare team? what you think they need to know? Not everybody is up to date about my their needs. So for example, my activities of daily living are a big part of how I keep healthy. 
and but not everybody sees that as a medical thing. So I've realized that it is for my own benefit to speak up and inform. So when I go, for example, for just this past week, I had a dental appointment and an eye appointment. I have to tell them I take uh, accessible transportation. So I have to ask them how long is the, the visit going to be in case there's a waiting period. And I tell them I'm, I'm not being pushy. <laughs> I just need to know so I can book my return trip. Because if I miss my accessible um, transportation, I'll have to wait for hours until they can find another one to send it. So that's the part that I have now understand that even though they don't know it, I have to speak up for that. When I go for my orthotics for my feet, for example, they know. When you book the appointment, they say, how are you coming to see us? And the minute I arrive to the office, they say, oh, you travel by Wheeltrans. They already have it in my file. What time is your, your trip arriving? So they know either to prioritize my, my visit or to you know make sure that they attend to anyone who can make come to the front office asking for a passenger. So accessible transportation, that's another very key part of healthcare, right? Absolutely. And it seems like some parts of the healthcare system are very attuned to it. They know its importance and other parts, maybe they still need to catch up a little. Absolutely. It's yet another piece of mind that has to pay attention to that, that I have to worry, that I am ready for my trip, that I don't miss it. So that is what allows me to get to my healthcare visit. And without that first piece of public transportation that is accessible, I wouldn't get there. Healthcare specialists do a lot for their patients. However, due to the narrow scope of their practice, they may spend less time considering other aspects of their patient's care. As a result, patients may feel compartmentalized rather than a whole. For this reason, it is important to learn about fellow healthcare professionals that your patients may be seeing. But we shouldn't be limiting ourselves to the clinic either. Learning about other resources in the community that can help our patients and sharing that information with the patient can help them navigate their healthcare journey. In 1998, there was this conference, joint effort, and it was making a word play with a word joint for joints. <laughs> uh, and then I found people that have the same disease with arthritis. And I learned that it's important to educate myself about my disease, uh, treatments, and how to find community. And luckily, I did find the Arthritis Society and they have information, they had educational programs, they had free services. And I learned that there were key allied healthcare professionals such as occupational therapists, physiotherapists, a social worker that actually gave me knowledge of how not just my body, my whole life was affected by arthritis, especially the social worker. She's the one who told me about Wheeltrans. And I was like, what? I have been taking a taxi cab all these years. Half my money was going there. And, and I did not know that I could just use a token and, and pay for public transportation that is accessible. So knowing this it was a huge change for me in terms of knowing not just one doctor that is going to provide care for me, but that there's other professionals.
When picturing the healthcare team, one might automatically think of doctors, nurses, and other specialists. But while speaking with Janet, I learned that lawyers and income support workers can also be included, and that we shouldn't underestimate the importance of their work. Janet explains exactly how they figure into the rest of the team. I think that these doctors, uh, I understand that the family health team is uh, 10 years in existence or so, but it was the doctors themselves who have this awareness of how the life of a person, who you are, where you live, where you work, how do you move through life with the identities you carry, whether it's your skin color, your gender identity, and other things such as do you speak English or do you worship a certain religion or uh, are you a citizen? They understand that all of these things that are quote-unquote life will have a direct effect in your health, in your biological health, in yours at the cellular level. If you don't eat properly, you're going to get sick. So they have had this understanding. That's how they have imbued the practice that they have. This is a academic family health team. And so they see the person first. And when the person arrives with a series of complaints or symptoms, they didn't just treat the symptom. They say, what else is causing, what is behind the symptom? What is causing there? So I'll give you an example. I was, uh, you know, having problems sleeping and I was having nauseas and my heart was palpitating and I couldn't sleep. I was, I just went to see the doctor and I was like, I'm desperate. I think I'm having again this anxiety, panic attacks. I don't know what to do. And if I had seen another professional, they would have said, oh, here's the prescription for your panic attacks. And I would go off to the pharmacy and home. But they asked me, like, what has changed? When did you start with the symptoms? So what changed then? And I said, well, I've had, because I've been on disability and I've accumulated a lot of debt, I was having this calls specifically about the debt that I have accumulated. I thought that it was an unfair call that the creditors were doing. And they said, you have to pay everything and you have to pay it now. But I did not know if this was true or not. Who, who do I talk to? I don't have family here. I don't have friends that I can you know, talk about these things. So they said, hey, why don't you talk to an income specialist here and see if they can help you either deal with the debt part of it. And when I did that, the income specialist gave me some referrals of how to deal with this debt credit issues. And they all thought, like I did, that this was unfair, that they were putting me on the spot like that. And so I, they referred me to the lawyer and the lawyer said, yeah, this is not true. You should do this and this other actions, which I did. And even though I still have my debt issue, I don't have the anxiety, I don't have the nightmares, I don't have the you know panic attacks. And I did not need a medication for that. I just needed a doctor who would understand and say, hey, let's look at what else is there. So how important would you say it is for us to start moving towards more incorporation of legal services and income support workers as a part of a healthcare interprofessional team. Before the COVID-19 pandemic, I would have said it is urgent because we understand how much the workplace or the jobs available have changed. There's a lot more precarity in the workplace. There's not the good um, 
stable, good-paying, unionized jobs of the 50s and the 60s. Now is the gig economy. And that has turned a lot of people uh, into daytime workers and, and, and nighttime Uber drivers. You don't have the same security, the safety to say, I am sure I can pay rent every month this year. No, you don't. We have seen, and COVID has sort of lifted the skirt of the poverty that was lingering underneath. And after two weeks of people not being able to go to work by no fault of their own or companies that had to shut down by no fault of their own, we have seen that people had no savings. They all had to stick their hand out Luckily, we have a, an economy that allowed for the you know government programs that have been in place that are not a solution. So I understand that before COVID, having a complete healthcare team that includes your life aspects, your housing, your um, if you're being evicted, you need to talk to a lawyer about it. If you're being harassed at work and you have you you have to go to work in a toxic environment, either because you're being sexually harassed or because you're being discriminated, we now have a very important word in our vocabulary, globally, anti-black racism. And that it's something that we now a lot more people understand that affects people in the workplace. If they have a toxic workplace, they're gonna get depression. That's real. So we need the people that take care of your health to see the context of who you are, the social determinants of your health and support people in what they cannot support themselves and their health will improve as well. Navigating the healthcare system and communicating with different healthcare professionals isn't always easy. Like myself, some of you may be wondering, how does someone who doesn't speak English very well get the support they need? This is where translators come in. Gestures and images alone may not be enough for patients to understand their physicians and vice versa. A translator can help ensure that communication runs smoothly and that both parties understand what is being asked of them. Janet explains. I honestly believe, I've heard this from so many patients who have receive a catastrophic diagnosis, um, the minute the doctor says, I'm sorry, but you have X, cancer, arthritis, whatever it is, they, and I'm thinking persons who were born in Canada and their English is their first language and they're university educated and they are CEOs of companies and whatnot, the minute they receive that diagnosis, what they say is, my mind shut down. My brain couldn't hear. My, the voice of the doctor was kind of like this voice underwater. Like there, nothing else was getting through after that, hearing the diagnosis. These are intelligible, cognitive, able people who speak English. So think about how important it is communication. What happens when English is not even your first language? Not only how would you understand and receive the diagnosis, how would you go about treatment? How would you go about managing your disease until you get to recovery? Having professional interpretation is, um, there's a study of, by the Wellesley Institute. I'd be happy to share the link with you. They um, 
did a study that patients who receive professional interpretation adhere to treatment and medication better and don't come back to the emergency room. Uh, those who receive interpretation from somebody were not so bad, but those who didn't have any interpretation at all, the outcomes of their health were a lot worse. Not only for the person suffering, having to return to the emergency room, having worse off condition, but to all of us. Because every time a person comes to the emergency room, that's at least $2,000 a day that we all have to pay for, right? So there's a physical pain for the individual. There's a financial cost for all of us. And all it takes is for us to be aware that there are services in 180 different languages and all the hospitals have access to this lifeline of languages. And that needs to be used. We need to be aware of this. We need to be aware of of the resources that are there. Communication is the key. You're a proponent of shared workplaces like community health centers, family health teams. So why do you think they're valuable to interprofessional care? When my father came to visit, he was going to a community health center. And uh, they also have the same approach. They had a wraparound of healthcare for uh, his type 2 diabetes. So we only needed to go there once every three months. And he would see nutritionists. He would see the diabetic nurse, the foot doctor, and the medical doctor to read his exams, prescribe the medication. And that was one trip. So if you're in a limited income, you don't have to go to three, four different places. You're saving money. And if you have limited mobility, which was my case, you don't have to go around to four different places. You go to one place and then you can come home, right? And you feel that you're being supported all around. And would you say it helps with things like referrals as well? Well, yes. I know that at the community health center, they not just had the health care part of it, uh, they had community activities. For example, they have communal lunches once every month. They had um, computer lessons, English as a second language lessons. They had a center for uh, well baby, new mothers. Uh, they had a group for youth. They talk about drugs and you know, uh, sex education. They had a group for seniors. So they had all of these around the community. So they saw not just preach about the well-being and how you need to fight isolation. They actually invested time, money, and programs so people will go there. They actually gave the tokens or the TTC tickets for seniors, so they didn't even have to incur in that expense. They make it really accessible for them. How do we help ensure patients are not just at the center of the interprofessional team, but also a part of it? We have to start by recognizing their role in their care and empowering them by educating them about their condition and the tools available at their disposal. This is what I tell the students that come in a, when I do the sessions for health mentor. Usually is the fall semester and the winter semester. And there's other volunteers like I am with different journeys in their chronic diseases. So what I tell them is for me, I need to understand what kind of resources, what kind of tools, what knowledge is going to help me every single day 
have the best quality of care that I can. If I go to my rheumatologist, who's at the top of the food chain, <laughs> the top of my healthcare, because he knows what this disease is about and how to treat it. So I see my rheumatologist and they prescribe a medication. So then I talk to my family doctor, might have something to say in terms of what else I, I need to do. I see my pharmacist and they're going to see all the other medications that I take. Are there any contraindications for that? I might need to talk to my income specialist or a social worker to help me with any medication costs that are not covered and how to access how what forms to fill out. I may need to see an occupational therapist to help me uh, you know, manage the variety of medications that I need to take, maybe have a pill dispenser or have the blister pack, which I did not know it existed. I may even need a, um, a nurse to come home and inject me every week with the medications that I need. So one simple thing, one simple medication may take four or five different professionals for me to be well. That's what I know. And if they don't understand that, if they don't empower the patient to seek their own team, uh, they are not really doing the patients a service. Patients can no longer be dependent or simply react to what the healthcare provider tells them to do or ask them about. We have to live with our chronic illness for the rest of our lives. And we need to educate ourselves. The healthcare system that we have right now was established almost a century ago. This is the time of pandemic. This is when people needed to be put somewhere, inside a hospital, over there, because they were contagious. Polio, Spanish flu, whatever it was. We needed to put them out there. But that's not the case anymore. There's a lot of those contagious diseases that have been eradicated, thank God. But other, but right now, the biggest call, financially at least, in resources for the healthcare system is chronic illnesses. Diabetes, high blood pressure, arthritis, mental illness, even cancer. Many types of cancer people survive and then sometimes live with that chronic illness, HIV AIDS. So right now I am a patient, but I don't need to be in the hospital. I have a disease, but I'm not ill. So my focus is to do life in the best way I can. And that's how the healthcare providers need to see us patients as leaders of our own healthcare team. They need to empower us to seek our team, to lead our team. And I think that's what needs to change. I honestly believe that in Canada, we have a very good healthcare system. We have professionals that are knowledgeable. Are, are, they know how to provide good quality services and they are compassionate. They are trained to give this care. But the piece that is missing is how we, the patients, we're at the other side of the window. How we as the patients are either 
ready to receive the care that they are providing or if we have many, many barriers to that care. I was given a medication and I needed six injections in one year. Each injection was $5,000 and I was in disability. So that was a barrier. That's the medication that made me a lot, a lot better. I was able to get out of the wheelchair and get surgeries and get, get my mind back. But that's years of having these injections. That's one barrier. What if you have, um, you know, they, they provide knowledge, they provide education, but if the patient doesn't speak English, which is the case for many people, I, I speak Spanish and in people in my community, I've seen, I've seen women with the same disease that I've had, diagnosed much more recent than I was, and they were much more deteriorated because they did not know how to communicate with a the doctor. They didn't want to pull their sons or daughters from their workplace for a whole day to go see the specialist, so they just didn't go. So those barriers are the ones that they need to understand. Having an interpreter so the patient doesn't feel that they need to have to rely on their neighbors or friends, right? So these are key parts uh, of keeping well, being well. What do you think is one of the most important things that someone who is a patient or a user of the healthcare system can do to ensure that they're receiving truly interprofessional care? First of all, it's a process. So it's not going to happen overnight. And you have to start somewhere. You need to educate yourself on this disease that you may have been given, especially if it is a chronic illness, either if it is happening to you or to someone that you care for. So you need to understand um, what are you dealing with. You need to understand what are the resources that are available for the life part of you, not just what are the medical resources available, like wheel trans, like the disability tax credit that allows you to have some part of your income deducted so you can take care of, I don't know, buying a wheelchair. Uh, so you need to understand how this disease is going to affect your life. Are you going to be able to go back to work? If so, how? And if you're going back to work with a disability, do you need to disclose? If no, why not? And if yes, how to do it? So these are all the other things that we need to empower ourselves, educate ourselves. But we also need to understand, we need to acquire a new language. At first, I label myself as a complainer. I thought, I don't want to be that person that is always saying, oh, no, but, oh, well, but, right? Like, I'm always complaining. I'm always asking. But that's my job because this is my life. And if I don't clear out the doubt that I have, if I don't ask for that assistance or that uh, device or what else is there available for me, I won't know finding peer support, for example, there's the Diabetes Society, there's, in my case, the Arthritis Society, and all the other peer support or community-based non-for-profit that honestly are doing research and education and provide services. So once you educate yourself and empower yourself, you actually can ask questions in a way that your healthcare providers will understand. I hope that through their formal education in school, they can learn that for many of the chronic illnesses, there's no cure. You're going to see this patient 
and you're not going to be able to cure it and it's not your fault so you need to empower yourself and work collaboratively with all of the other allied healthcare professionals on how to support this person You've now become very involved with helping teach new health professionals how to give good interprofessional care to patients. So can you kind of talk about what that's meant to you to be able to do that? That was life-changing. It was empowering. As a 20-something-year-old woman who was ready to take life and, you know, do my master's degree, get a job, have a business, travel the world, have a family, have a pet. Arthritis came and completely took everything away. Uh, not only it took it away, but it took it away bit by bit by bit. So you don't realize. And 10 years later, after my diagnosis, I was like, what's happening with me? This was terrible because every day is like somebody's taking something away from you. And when I could no longer thing talk read move walk it was devastating it was like I don't have a body I don't have a mind I don't have a life and when I was invited to be a health mentor or to talk about uh, you know being a patient partner in arthritis that was an opportunity for me to use all this ugly horrible painful experience that I had accumulated over the years and package it in a completely different way. And I was in charge. I was the one who was going to use this negative, horrible experience and use it as a tool to teach healthcare providers and say, hey, arthritis is more than just swollen joints. Arthritis is something that will destroy a person's life, that will completely change your capacity to live, love, work, play. It will devastate your finances, and it will, if it goes not well treated, it will lead to disability. And I was in charge of taking my lived experience and repackage it as a tool. So that was extremely powerful for me. And uh, well, we've, we've been lucky that we've grown and now there's a lot more voices of a lot more many people uh, who live with a chronic illness and are now teaching how to live a good quality life in spite of your disease. When discussing medical interprofessionalism, there is always a risk of overlooking people who don't seem like obvious members of the healthcare team. However, lawyers, income specialists, and translators play a big role in the external and interpersonal factors that influence healthcare. Financial, language, and legal barriers can make it difficult for patients to access the care they need. Patients themselves must be recognized as team players and given the tools and information necessary to become active participants in their own treatment. Care to Connect was produced by Asma Gafour. It was written by Michelle Mongilner and Asma Gafour and edited by Jill Johnson. 
A special thanks to Della Corteau from the Leslie Dan Faculty of Pharmacy, as well as Sylvia Langlois and Dean Lissick from the Center for Interprofessional Education at the University of Toronto. Music is by Poddington Bear under the Creative Commons license and artwork by Caitlin Lazar.